Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you, and I want to say a quick welcome to those who are joining us on our live stream. Uh, So glad to have you with us, wherever you are, uh, here locally or around the world, and those out in the foyer, because we uh, cast out there as well for those who have a need to be out in the foyer, caring for kids, or whatever the case may be. So good to have all of you here. I would love to have you take your Bibles, if you have one there handy, and turn with me to the book of Daniel Chapter 7 is where we're going to be here this morning. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, just a couple of months ago, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of those famous words, Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. Uh, words made famous, of course, by Dr. David Johnston, a volcanologist who was doing his job watching Mount St. Helens percolate away, and then that fateful morning when it blew straight at him. And if you know your Mount St. Helens history, you know that those words never made it to their intended target in Vancouver. They were picked up rather by a ham radio operator, recorded and forwarded on, and those were Dr. Johnston's last words, it would appear, as the um, volcano ate him up. Well, The estimation that this is it, of course, have also been spoken by many down through the years as they have read Bible prophecy and looked at the world around them and said, is this it? It's time. Uh, Clearly, the end of the world is upon us. Jesus will be here any moment, and however it all wraps up, it's going to come. So far, it would seem that those estimates have not quite been accurate. After all, here we are. Um, But nonetheless, in these days, many also are asking the question, uh, is this it? Isn't that right? You've heard them, and maybe you have been among them. Well, today we step into the section of the book of Daniel that involves a lot of prophecy. Uh, Appropriate that we be here, of course, for such a time as this. And so we're going to do that this morning. I want to pray for us and... um, My goodness sakes, I I should give you one little disclaimer as we get going. All your questions uh, about uh, prophecy will not be answered in the next 30 minutes, okay? But but we're going to do Daniel 7, this little part of it. But pray with me, please, and let's ask God's help as we come here together this morning. Our Father, how good it is to open the Word of God together in this uh, world that seems to be uh, like so much... Uh, shifting sand. We find great comfort in coming to you, knowing that you are God, uh, God over all, and your word is true, and we can place our hope in you. And I pray that this morning you would rivet us close to the text, and that you would assure our hearts about you, the things that are certain, and that this would be a morning of a great encouragement for us all. So we ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel 7, oh my goodness sakes, I'm excited about uh, this big shift that we get to, to, to go under today and in the weeks ahead. Uh, on your sermon notes that I hope you picked up from the, the bulletin, you see some words of review and a reminder about where we've been in past weeks, and then a little paragraph about today's text, and I want to pause there for a couple of minutes. Uh, you've heard us talk about our preaching of the book of Daniel so far, and you've heard us mention several times that Daniel 1 through 6, in terms of style, literary style, is narrative, pretty much. 
It's telling a story. Narrative is, a, is just a term that says, uh, that it's describing a, a, a story. This happens, this happens. The guy went over here and, you know, didn't get eaten by the lion. So it's telling a, a, a story. Now, apocalyptic literature is something different. There are different types of literature, as you know, in the Bible, Proverbs are a style and Psalms are another style and narrative is another and apocalyptic is another. Well, uh, there are some different rules that apply. You know this from eighth grade English. Hopefully you paid attention. There are different rules that apply to different types of things. A limerick is a limerick and it's what it is. And it's not the same thing as a history lesson. Uh, And similarly, in the Bible. It doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means it's a different style of, of literature and use different rules to understand it. So uh, book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature. Daniel, 7 through, through 12. Uh, not entirely, but largely. A lot more apocalyptic stuff. Uh, one person described it as um, uh, moving from storytelling to like a, a stereo movie with scary creatures and, um, my goodness, all kinds of things that are just different, okay? So we'll talk more about that, and I'll try not to overstate you know, the case in any one direction, but just be aware it's something different. Now, some would quickly point out, I know, I know, um, we've mentioned that parts of the book of Daniel are written in Aramaic, and that continues a little further here in the text, so some would divide things just a little different. I'm staying with where we're at, and apocalyptic, here we go. Now, I note here as well, that Daniel is older as he writes this. Um, We'll talk about the time signatures in a moment, but there are some great correspondences. You should know this. If you're one who likes to study the Bible, you will find strains of this text, Daniel 7, in Matthew 24, all of it discourse as Jesus talks. We'll reference some things in 2 Thessalonians 2 this week and next Sunday. And Pastor Luke already referenced uh, Revelation 4. There's tremendous dependency correspondence between Daniel 7 and Revelation 4 and 5, especially the middle section of chapter 7 as we're going to read it. If you, if you look at the two texts, you'd, you'd say, man, separated by, by a, a lot of time and different writers, it looks like they're looking at the same thing, as indeed I would suggest they are. So anyway, interesting things for us to look at, but we we come today to Bible prophecy and God's word. If you look at your study notes now, before we jump into the text, I want to do uh, what the, the impossible, okay? That is a crash course in how to read and understand prophecy in about five minutes. Uh, I know volumes have been written on this, graduate-level seminary courses produced by the, you know, many, many dozen about this, and I'm going I'm to just give you a few things very, very quickly, knowing it's grossly incomplete but necessary for where we're going, okay? So, important things about Bible prophecy. Here you go. First of all, the goal. Uh, some people look at Bible prophecy as, as kind of like God playing a big game of Clue, giving you little dicey pieces here and hoping you'll read the Wall Street Journal or watch the news enough to, to figure it all out. And indeed, books are written and conferences displayed. And again, I'm not knocking either books or conferences. I've learned a lot from them. But sometimes a person could almost get the idea that God is like baiting us. Here's a little piece. Here's a little piece. Here's a little piece. And if you're really, really smart, you'll figure it out and have your own conference and tell everybody how it is. Okay? And again, I've learned a lot from conferences, not knocking them. I'm just wanting us to know that the big point of Bible prophecy isn't isn't that you would figure it all out in advance. 
Okay? Please get that. That isn't the point. Uh, The big point, as I put in your study note, is, in fact, to clearly establish that the Most High, the Most High God, holds human history in his hand, that he is sovereign over it all, that you would find great comfort in knowing God sits on the throne. He knows what he's doing. He's sitting on the throne of the universe. He does, in fact, know what's going on. It isn't out of control. We're not sitting on a rock, you know, plummeting through space, going nowhere. God help us all. He is helping us all. He's got this. He does know what's going on. So that assurance, I think, is the big picture of prophecy. Yeah, we're told this, we're told this, and it happens. And instead of saying, well, I had all that figured out, your heart should say, he knew it all along. And you should find great joy percolating through your heart about that. So please, that's a really big deal. It really is. And indeed, it's a big deal today. Now, some other things. There are in, in the Bible, things that you would call exact prophecies. And some of this, I'm recapitulating to our study in Matthew's gospel a couple of years ago. A lot of prophecy elements we did then as we talked about the book of Matthew. But so if you say, I think I've heard this before. You did. It was about two years ago. Okay. There are exact prophecies. This is that. I give you one example, Micah 5.2, that talks about Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Prophecy fulfillment. Okay. There are also in the Bible similar prophecies. In other words, this is, it's not that exactly, but it's like that. Okay. It's important to know the difference between those. This is like that. An example I've given you again, just one, there are many Jeremiah 31 corresponding with Matthew uh, chapter two, verse 18. I'll tell you the story briefly. Um, in Jeremiah 31, you find uh, a story about a place called Ramah, and captives were being kind of pooled there, getting ready to be taken away into, into uh, some kind of slavery and so on. And there was weeping there in Ramah. Well, guess what happens in Matthew 2? The slaughter of the innocents around the, surrounding the birth of Jesus. And you, you read, this is, this is like that, a voice uh, weeping in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more. Well, it had happened in history, but then it happens again. So this, Matthew 2, verse 18, is like that. So that's a kind of a different one. The next one, really super important. Oh, pay attention to this. What, we've, what can be called prophetic foreshortening. Oh, that's easy, right? Prophetic foreshortening. Well, the idea is that sometimes Bible prophecy, okay, often has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Things that from a distance look compressed, they look closer. And a quick analogy from, you know, nature, um, I have, we mentioned Mount St. Helens already uh, some years ago, I was able to climb it a couple times. I've been up and hope to do it again in the next month or so. Uh, Be able to climb Mount St. Helens, you can get up on the edge and kind of look down and go, whew, wow, long way down. Well, interesting, when you're up that high, if you look north, it looks like Mount Rainier is just right there. Like you could reach out, like run and jump, and you'd get there. You look south, you go Mount Hood. It's just, I mean, it's right here, and Three Sisters, and Mount Adams, and all the mountain peaks look so close. It's easy to forget that there's miles in between. In fact, if you were with a telephoto lens at one end or the other to shoot the mountain peaks, they would all look pretty close. Well, prophetic foreshortening is the idea that sometimes there's a, there's a prophecy given and something happens near, pretty close, and people look at it and say, well, that's it. Forgetting that there's another fulfillment or another, and they all look close. The example I've given you here, really important, okay? 
This is from Isaiah 61, and you reference this along with Luke chapter 4. You'll remember in the story of Jesus, there was a moment in Luke chapter 4, so described, when Jesus goes into a synagogue, and he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he begins to read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news and to deliver the captives and so on. But he stops right in the middle of what we call verse two. He stops and he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down and says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What was the next line that he didn't read? Well, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So he had come to fulfill the first part, stopped, and, and the rest was to be fulfilled later. So as I reference in another note and jumping ahead just a little bit, the, the disciples of Jesus uh, and all those at that time saw one coming of Messiah. They didn't see two because it was kind of compressed. You read the Old Testament story of prophecy and Messiah coming. It, it, they didn't see that a savior would come and suffer and die and then come again. They saw he's going to come, he's going to throw Rome out of here, and it's going to be one happy day again. They didn't see the valley in between. And that little story from Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 is just one example of that. And Jesus said, I've come to fulfill this. Stop. I'll get to the rest later. The disciples didn't see it. So prophetic foreshortening. This plays into our text today in Daniel 7, I would propose. Okay? Some, and we'll see it next week as well, Daniel 8. There's some elements that, that were fulfilled in history, but it looks like there's a greater fulfillment yet to come. So prophetic foreshortening. These are just things you should know about. Last days. Are we in the last days? Somebody give me an answer. Well, yes. Biblically, yes. That's the answer. Uh, meaning, anytime, according to the Bible, anytime after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Bible calls it the last days. Did you know that? So anybody who says, is this it, as in the last days? Well, yes, the Bible would say. Most people aren't asking that, though. They're wanting to know if we're in the last of the last days. And that only God knows, right? Only God knows and will know later when he lets us know. So I don't know that. And I want to quickly then step to my next element here because it piggybacks right on this moment, okay? I call it prophetic humility, What do I mean by that? This is a critical need in our time, and you probably need a little dose too, okay? Prophetic humility is is the awareness that no matter how much you study the Bible, no matter how many books you read and conferences you attend, you might be missing a detail or two. You just might not have it all figured out as much as you think you do. And I reference here Jesus' disciples, what I said a moment ago, clearly familiar with the prophecies of coming Messiah. They missed some details. They had no way of knowing two comings, not one. They didn't see it. Maybe they should have known, but I don't think so. They were well-studied. It wasn't that they were ignorant. It wasn't that they had had lousy teachers. That wasn't it. It wasn't that they missed a conference or a book. Is it just from their study of the Bible, they didn't see two comings. They saw one. No no flaw in them. Similarly, we take our best guess as we look at some elements, and you know what? You you hold it with some, hopefully, what I call prophetic humility. I mean, I think it's going to be like this. But you, you carry it with, uh, I, don't, I don't mean agnosticism, like who knows, but you carry it with some humility. Just a couple of examples of that. Uh, people who study such things will tell you that at least 240 times in recordable history, people have set specific dates for the coming of Jesus. 
How many of the 240, I think it's more than that, 244, something. How many have been correct? Well, 04 is the answer. Zero, none of them yet. Uh, some of us remember the, the prophetic uh, frenzy of the 60s and 70s, right? Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth. Some of us remember this very, very vividly um, as, as campuses were on fire, as buildings were burned, no, literally, as troops were in the streets, as morality plummeted, as war ravaged the planet, as things came up about, uh, you know, the uh, environmental concerns. Does any of this sound familiar? And I, as a student in high school at the time, wondered if I should even bother to graduate. Okay, tongue-in-cheek, my, you know, my parents would kill me, so I, you, you know you're going to finish. But you wonder, what's the point? And should I even go to college or get a real job? Because after all, Jesus will be here any time. That's the way it looked in the 60s and 70s. 1980s came along. 1987, there was a book came out. You haven't heard of it since. It was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. Any reasons, any idea why you haven't seen it? Well, yeah, it wasn't republished. Well, it was in 1987, and of course it had a very limited run. But, but I'm just saying, need for prophetic humility. And you hear us here often talk about doctrine and how we hold it. You've seen our little bullseye. There are things in the middle that get you into heaven or keep you out. Blood of Jesus, things like this. His death in your place on the cross, resurrection from the dead. Those elements are right in the middle. Don't get those wrong. And then you step out a bit where you say, okay, I'm holding that pretty firmly, but it's not quite like the blood of Jesus. Okay? And I'm aware, prophetic humility, boy, I sure think it looks like this, but I won't take a bullet. Not for that, okay? Uh, you've heard me say I, I'm still a pre-trib, pre-mill guy. Still am. Don't see any reason to budge from that. But please don't, please don't ask me to take a bullet because I'll dodge and I'll go straight to the blood of Jesus and I'll take a bullet there, okay? So I can still say, though, this is what I see as most likely. So I don't want to step into what often today people do with, with a kind of a prophetic agnosticism that says, well, since you can't figure any of it out, don't worry about any of it. Uh, no, not, I don't think so. I don't think you need to go there. The Bible is very clear on a number of things. So away we go with that. Okay, you got that? There you go. Now you're all going to get on Amazon right away and order 88 Reasons Why Jesus is going to come in 1988. Uh, there are similar books that had been more recently published. It's true. Well, anyway, Daniel 2, with that as a long introduction... Uh, you see what I'd like to do here now. I want to read the text in three different sections, make some comments, obviously not exhaustive, but a, a number of things I want to do, uh, laying the groundwork in part for where we're going in the weeks ahead. Let's read the word of God then. Uh, Daniel 7, uh, 1 to 8 is where we'll start. We read this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. 
And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a moment. That's the, 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 at least the initial part of the dream. There's a section that follows with, that kind of shifts to a different scene. And then an interpretation comes later relative to the beasts. But I want to stop for just a moment here. Uh, The chapter begins with a time signature. It's important to notice these things as you read and study the Bible. And this is an important one in particular. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, uh, now you you quickly remember from our study of chapters 1 through 6, let's see, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, let's see, we had Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning, switch to Belshazzar. Oh, that's right, he's the guy who saw the handwriting on the wall, right? Remember this, a couple weeks ago? And that night, Belshazzar the king was slain, the end of chapter 5. So if you look at this chronologically now, important to know, Daniel 1 through 6 kind of moves along in order, though huge gaps of time in between them. Daniel moves from being a a teenager to an an older man in those six chapters. So big chunks about Daniel's life that we know nothing at all. Now you come to chapter 7, and in a sense you, you go back a bit. He's going back arguably 14 years or so, thereabouts, plus or minus, depending on who you listen to. But it's back a ways. So he's, he had this dream a while ago, and he's kind of been percolating on it. I'm assuming he took notes, or maybe it was so riveting that it, he just didn't forget a thing. But, but this, is, this happened a while ago. He's now telling us. So we're moving out of strict chronology and hitting this other section that kind of fits back a ways. Uh, kind of interesting to think about, uh, especially when you think about Belshazzar uh, as, the, as Babylon falling and Babylon being part of this dream, it would appear. Now, I, I mentioned as well, verse 2 and verse 3 make reference to the great sea. Interesting, again, these things you should think about. Um, this is referenced in Revelation as well. See, see, uh, often in the Bible now is used as an analogy for the great populations. Sometimes it's used that way. Sometimes it's used to talk about kind of the, the, the turmoil, the great sea, sea monsters and so on, talking about things that are disruptive and in great turmoil and things like that. So people think here, boy, it says he comes out of the sea, um, Man, is that the Atlantic or the Mediterranean or, or the Pacific? Or, well, perhaps, and, and again, different rules apply to interpreting different types of literature. Um, but yeah, I like to stick with literal unless there's a reason otherwise. And I think in some of these cases, there is a reason otherwise. Uh, coming out of the sea, this great mass of humanity. Okay, I understand, I think. Now, I want to go back to Daniel 2 for a moment. Okay, can you do that same book? It's not too far back. Back in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream too. Remember this? This was a big deal, of course, for Daniel because Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and doesn't want to tell anybody what it is or he forgets. And Daniel, by God's power, is able to do that. And it's a dream that involves this big statue. 
And we saw in Daniel 2 um, that this statue uh, gets from, goes from a gold head, Babylon, and we know that because Daniel says, you're the guy, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. And then it moves down to the feet, and it gets uh, weaker as it goes. And then, of great importance for us today, uh, we're told that there's a stone, verse 34, a stone cut out by no human hand. Like it comes out of nowhere, and it hits the feet of the statue, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And then we're told, in verse 44, that this is, this is the kingdom of God. It's coming in from the outside, hitting the, the kingdoms of men, and causing them to crash. God's kingdom destroying all earthly kingdoms. God's kingdom breaking in from the outside. Some have wondered if that's the rise of the church. I sincerely doubt it because Daniel 2 describes this as coming from the outside in, not something growing, percolating slowly through, um, and it's something God does, breaking in from the outside, smashing these kingdoms, and of course, his kingdom will stand forever. Now, I I go back to that because, you ready? Uh, People who study such things, and again, many things have been written more than I can repeat to you today that would suggest that the four kingdoms in Daniel 2 are the same four kingdoms in Daniel 7, okay? And I mentioned those on your study notes, which would be Babylon, which was followed by Medo-Persia. Remember at the end of chapter 5, and into, uh, the, the fall of, of, of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, followed by Greece, followed by Rome, Okay, so people who study history and study prophecy and so on, I'm just crash coursing with just a bit of information, boom, there it is. Those four kingdoms, it would appear, um, are the ones that are subject to the dream. The, the animals are ferocious, some of them uh, with characteristics that are quick, some that are just strong and terrifying. I am captured especially by the bear with, with um, ribs in its mouth. On the one hand, I think, man, he's got good taste. I love eating ribs. But on the other hand, I suspect that there's something here about uh, that isn't about Tony Romas. I suspect it's about ripping and things up and being a, ba- you know, being a bad day if those are your ribs in its mouth. Uh, well, those beasts are, are, are used to kind of personify those kingdoms. So I put on your study notes kind of revisiting the progression of history. I think, I think... Uh, that's kind of what's going on, again, very, very briefly. I want to start reading again at verse 9. And this middle, this middle section that is so significant, I think it's in the middle of the chapter for great reason, by reason of emphasis in particular. So Daniel 7, then starting verse 9, we read, And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels like burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court stood in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Note that phrase, I'll comment on it in a minute. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Wow. Now, a number of things. (laughs) Wow. The Ancient of Days, the Most High God, seated on the throne. And I, I hasten to state the obvious. That's half of preaching, you know, is stating the obvious. So here goes. The throne of the universe is not empty. The throne of the universe is well occupied by the Ancient of Days, the Most High God, who rules and reigns even now over all of the universe that he has made. There is not a leadership vacuum, okay? It is not out of control. The universe is not just spinning into infinity with with no purpose and randomness and crashing into nothingness. It is not just going to implode someday. No, there there is a God in heaven who called it into being at the beginning and will see it through to the end that he has ordained. So that is in great distinction from those who would say, you know what, it's all just random. It all just came out of nowhere and it's going nowhere. Wrong, the Bible says. Think of how despairing that is to have a a view of the world that says it's all just random. What does your life matter if there is no God? The answer is nothing. It doesn't matter at all. If there's no God who created you and knows your name and sent his son Jesus to die for you, why, why does it matter if you have a good day or bad day? Frankly, who cares? You're just going to die and go into nothingness, and it won't matter, so get over it. Man, the biblical worldview comes along and says, no, you were created by the hands of a loving God, and there's purpose and reason to life, and the universe is heading someplace according to a direction that God has ordained, and he's got it. So these things matter a lot. This isn't just, you know, some stuff in the Bible. No, the Ancient of Days is seated on the throne. And the symbolism here, as I note in your study sheet, emphasizes his wisdom and his holiness, the flames, the hair of his head being white. That's a symbol of wisdom. Throne, a flame of fire, holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, justice. Verse 10 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Wow. Books were opened. What's in the books? Well, the court is in judgment, so I take it to mean evidence. Things that happened. Uh, We read in the book of Hebrews, the motives of men's hearts. Wow. No, the throne of the universe is well occupied by the most high God. So if you walk out of here with anything today, I hope you don't walk out at the end of the day saying, well, I'm really, really puzzled about the, you know, what happens to the Antichrist and the follower. You know what? You can think about the Antichrist all you like, but if you forget about the Ancient of Days, the Most High God seated on the throne, that's the main deal here, okay? So grab a hold of that and let that breathe wind into your sails. Uh, tremble, I put, before the Ancient of Days. Now, the Son of Man, verse 13 and 14 the clouds of heaven, uh, note that. We'll, again, we'll say more about that as we head toward a conclusion. The clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. You are very well aware, I hope, that one of the, one of the titles Jesus loved to use for himself was son of man. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why do you think he did that endlessly? Well, Jesus was 
purposely identifying himself here with the figure in Daniel 7. Jesus was using a phrase that would call anybody in his day, and they did get it, to, to back to this text. Jesus was calling to mind Daniel 7. He did it repeatedly, purposely, and it irritated other people around him. Who, you know, this, and I give you one text of that, of course, Matthew 26. Um, the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds of heaven. Oh, yes, he is. And the people who heard him knew immediately, you're claiming to be the one in Daniel 7. This text is of great importance in your study of the New Testament. What's going on here with the, I mean, details of what would appear to be information about the Trinity, the Father on the throne. Here's this Son of Man presented before him. He is the one who, who receives power and glory and kingdom to reign that all the nations would bow before him and would serve him. Man, this takes you right into the book of Revelation. It takes you uh, to New Testament truth, the authority of the Son of Man, Christ himself, to rule and reign. All of this stems out of this text, along with a lot of other things. His kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. Well, I want to go on to verse 15. History is moving toward a great showdown with a sure result. I want to read the rest of the chapter here, all right? So we read, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, as we've seen. Yes, the, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. That's kind of a synopsis. And so these four kingdoms, and eventually, you know what? The people of God uh, with him will rule and reign forever. Well, yes, okay, verse 19. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. So there's a focus here on this fourth beast that earlier we identify as Rome, okay? Ancient Rome, now defunct, the sands of, uh, taken away in the sands of time. But here he's going to focus again on this fourth beast, this Roman empire, it would seem. I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth, had a mouth that spoke great things. Isn't that great? Seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints. So whoever that horn is, uh, take, picks a fight with the people of God. Makes war with the, with, the, with the saints and prevails over them, at least for a time, until the Ancient of Days comes and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Wow, so the, the outcome is very sure. Then he said, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, which if you study prophecy and read the books and been to the conferences, you hear talk about a one world government. It's from texts like this that, you, that hints of this begin to develop. He says, this kingdom is different. The others, boy, different from the others perhaps, and the others were more regionally located. This one devours the whole earth, tramples it down, breaks it to pieces. As for the 10 horns, now horns, by the way, in the Bible, horns are used as symbols of power. Sometimes big horns, sometimes small horns, but they're symbols of power. Kings, sometimes a king is uh, described as a big, uh, great power or small, or a bigger horn or a smaller horn. Well, so here, I think, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He will be different 
from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So power struggles here. He'll speak words against the Most High. So this is not a good evangelical Jesus-loving Christian. Okay? He speaks words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Indeed. And shall think to change the times and the law. That is, things that ought not to be changed. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, which would seem to be three and a half years, which makes you jump right ahead. Don't do it. Don't do it. It makes you jump right ahead to New Testament things, Book of Revelation, and so on. Uh, We stay in the text here uh, for today. But it appears to be a reference to three and a half years, which again we see later in Daniel. The court shall sit in judgment, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, who, this, this horn, this little horn, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Wow, how amazing is all of that? Now, again, if you studied prophecy and so on, you, your mind is already headed to New Testament. You're already in the Olivet Discourse. You're already in Second Thessalonians. You're already in the book of Revelation. Hold off on that for a minute. We're not going to all those places today. Some we will, and some we will next week. But, but slow down and stay right in the text. What do you know and what do you not know from this text? A couple of things I want to call out. History is moving toward a great showdown with the sure result. I want to emphasize the sure result. Okay? Who wins in the end? That's right, the Ancient of Days, the one who sits on the throne and the saints of the Most High with him. So there is no, there is no question about how this whole party ends. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. And of course, that shows up here. It shows up in verse 22. I was just reading verse 27. And of course, back in chapter 2, um, same thing, same thing. The outcome is sure. I want to comment on the little horn Mentioned on your study notes, history has had a lot of little horns. By that I mean human rulers who think they have a big voice, who sometimes make a big splash. But those big, those little horns, uh, my goodness sakes, what happens to them? I want to go back to verse 11. This is so striking to me. It's a minor point in the text, but I want to call it out anyway. We're in verse 11, we're in the presence of the Ancient of Days. We're seated in the throne room. 10,000 times 10,000 attend to the one on the throne. Flames of fire. What's the horn doing? What's the horn doing in verse 11? Well, talking. Why is that so stunning? Because what would you be doing? You're in the presence of God Most High. Ancient of Days. Fire, smoke. 10,000 times 10,000, what are you doing? Yapping? No, I don't think so. You are on your face in worship. You are focused on the one of the throne and your mouth, your mouth is closed before the, before the one with whom we have to do. You, you're, mm, I don't think you're yapping. This little horn, uh, forgive me if I make too much of it, the horn is speaking. And then, and then of course, in verse 20, he, he's the one with the mouth that keeps talking. So a lot of words, a lot of words, a lot of words, and in verse 28, 26, the court stands in judgment. And I think here of that, those cool little machines you hang on your back deck, you know, the bug eaters. And there's this moment where it goes, Zzzt. and you know what that is, don't you? 
That's, a, that's the bad day for the mosquito or bug or whatever. It is. That's what happens to the guy with the big mouth here who thinks to take on the most high. Done. Pretty striking. Rather than humbling himself and falling, awe and wonder before the one who sits on the throne. Talk, 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 talk. No. no. Anyway, I think, I think it's very interesting. Well, he loses. Uh, now, I mentioned on your study notes here, Second Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. It would appear, and again, I'm only going to skip ahead a tiny bit. Uh, next week, we'll go there a little more. Second Thessalonians 2 says a lot about the being that we quickly call the Antichrist, and it appears to be the same being as right here. Uh, Second Timothy, or Second Thessalonians 2, I think in Revelation 13, perhaps commentary on some of the elements here in Daniel 7. I mentioned the literary uh, correspondence between the two. So those New Testament references likely giving more information about this, this little horn, this, this beast, this, this Antichrist uh, loses in the end, put, makes it miserable for the people of the Most High, absolutely, and yet falls before the power of the one on the throne. History is moving toward a great showdown with a sure result. Now, I, I am going to go to a couple of things and move us toward a conclusion today, leaving a lot of things hanging, understandably. You've got to keep coming because Daniel 8, Daniel 9, we'll see a lot more details about this. We'll get to Daniel's 70th week and so on in just a couple of weeks. But all of these things, I think, um, point us in some directions that we want to talk about. Now, I want you to grab the phrase in verse 13 before we leave the text, because I'm going to go to the New Testament for just a moment. In verse 13, this, this, there's this moment. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Well, there are certain things that are repeated in biblical literature. And so I want to go ahead. First, all of it, this course, Matthew. Matthew chapter 24, if I may. Okay. Matthew 24. And I would re- want to read just a couple verses. And I do this not to spell out chronology. That isn't my main issue here today. But the surety of how it's all going to end. So Matthew 24, words of Jesus. And I'm going to start reading it verse 29 rather than 30 as represented on your study notes. So Matthew 24, 29 Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of, who is it? The Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. There they are, the clouds, with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Some would look at this and say, that's the rapture of the church. No, I don't think, if I understand in time events at all, uh, I would say, no, not the rapture of the church, second coming. They're not the same event. Again, stay tuned for that in the weeks ahead. Rapture of the church, second coming. Well, the signs of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Revelation 13, uh, sorry, Revelation 1 is where I want to go. Revelation 1, just a couple verses at the beginning. And think of the dependence on Daniel 7. So Revelation 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is 
and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You see the gospel here? And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is, what is it? He's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail. They'll mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. Harkens back to Matthew 24 and Daniel 7. Great correspondence between these. Now, let me, let me finish like this today. First of all, I hope you know Christ is your Savior. I hope you do. I hope, I hope that you have trusted Christ as your Savior and you're part of the family of God. And I hope that you are ready, whether you're here in this room or listening elsewhere, I hope that you are ready for a day that is surely coming. When instead of Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. When indeed, in terms of God drawing history together, and he will, I hope you're ready. People talk today about being on the right side of history. Let me tell you something. You want to be on the right side of that history, okay? Knowing Christ is your Savior. Now, further, I hope that you don't get lost today in the wrong details. It's good to be curious about how this is all going to work out and end-time events and one-world government and uh, money, you know, the financial system and cashless society. I, I get it, I get it, I get it. But if that's the big, biggest stuff that occupies your mind, you're missing the main point. The big point is God rules and reigns. The Most High God, he sits on the throne. The Ancient of Days, indeed, as the song says, he's got the whole world, yes, in his hands. He does know what he's doing. It's not out of control. No, it isn't. And rather than living with, oh, please, rather than living captured by fear, God's people of all should be those who live with great confidence because we live in the presence of the most high God. Okay? So, so don't miss it. Don't get lost in details and worry about things. What if I get that wrong? You, as long, you get Jesus correct. You get Jesus correct. Study your Bible and all the rest, and you hang on to Christ. Okay, Now, the weeks ahead are going to be very interesting. I hope uh, we're going to percolate through all kinds of other details and Antichrist. And what is this thing about Daniel's 70th week? You ever heard of that? Well, you will. We're a couple weeks away, and that's where we're going to be going. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us. A couple announcements after that, and we'll be, we'll be on our way out. But let me pray for us here. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, uh, for all the areas in which we have questioned we have no question about who runs the place. And you do, oh God, you do. And I'm so thankful that for all the things that are, are stressful, and they are, for all the areas where there's question, and there are many, one area where there is no stress and where there are no questions is that you sit on the throne of the universe. You rule and reign, and things are not out of your control. And our Father, give us great, great confidence in you today. And fill us with joy because we know you, walk with you. All of this because of Jesus loved us, died on the cross, rose from the dead. Thank you that we hear the gospel and we believe it. Father, we trust you for the week ahead, whatever comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.